This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1193. I am Rob Jan. Megan McHugh, our co-host, is on sabbatical. And our title today is Janurai's Back, because we'll be looking at uh, Samurai Jack Season 5, which I have finally managed to procure on TVT. Ah... So looking forward to that. Uh, and our podcast title today is Podstiche, because we're going to be having a look at a couple of pastiche novels. Actually, makes them sound quite um, Cornish, but uh, maybe not. Although at least two of them are British. Now, uh, we're experiencing technical difficulties of our podcast. I expect to be up and punning again as usual around about next week, but uh, starting this week as well. I've got some of our crack Triple R team out there at this very moment downloading material into <laughs> various weird and wonderful USB sticks that I had to scrabble together this morning. We'll get there. Uh, and I wanted to start off today with a little bit of a roundup of some interesting things in the genre. Uh, SBS Viceland is going to be screening Taika Watiti's new supernatural police procedural comedy series and that is Wellington Paranormal from Tuesday the 31st of July with a double episode with single episodes dropping every week thereafter. They'll also be streaming on SBS On Demand uh, the excellent um, uh, counterpart as well. I've never been told about this... um, uh, how like call this uh, parallel universe, alternate universe series, and uh, I'm quite interested by. It. I haven't had a, a chance to fully watch it yet. Started, but um, yeah, some listeners to Zero G clued me in on it. So thanks for that, guys. I really appreciate finding some of this stuff that sometimes I don't get to. Uh, now. Uh, this is all excellent news for fans of what we do in the shadows too, of course, with um, Wellington Paranormal, which is guaranteed to be a hoot and a half. Now, something that's probably less amusing, but, uh, well, I don't know, if you have a very sick sense of humour, Preacher, Season 3, new episodes are dropping once a week on Stan, and they're up to Episode 3 as of last week. I think there's another one coming out tonight or today sometime. Uh, In Season 3, Jesse Custer's seriously off family and hometown of Angelville is pretty much everything you'd expect it would have taken to raise a boy like him. (laughs) So, now, uh, Jesse Custer has a uh, a voodoo nonna, (laughs) well, naturally, and you should never trust Cassidy the vampire anywhere near a grenade launcher. Oops. (laughs) And regarding Jesse's powers... And his ongoing troubles, you'd really think it would be more Giggles being the Messiah. So it's all happening there on Preacher Season 3. More outrageous than ever before. (laughs) Uh, Now, there's a new Joss Whedon series slated for HBO. It's called The Nevers. 
N-E-V-E-R-S, and is about a group of Victorian-era women with superpowers. So, very Doctor Who. Hmm. HBO and Joss Whedon drama. Seems like a finely machined fit to me. And speaking of superwomen, the Marvel Black Widow movie has found its director, Australian Kate Shortland. Uh, she's done um, episodes of The Secret Life of Us and a series called Bad Cop, Bad Cop. Uh, and the property that recommended her to Scarlett Johansson, who as the Black Widow had a say in the directorial choice, uh, Law, L-O-R-E, uh, where the um, uh, uh, woman had to uh, work with... Um, a bunch of refugees trying to get across uh, uh, Germany as the Allies swept across it um, during and after World War Two. So that, that uh, seems to have uh, said that she can handle a strong female lead as a character, and of course you'd need that for doing a Black Widow movie. Uh, Kate Shortland has also done The Silence, which was a telly movie that starred Richard Roxburgh and Essie Davis, and she's her third feature film is Berlin Syndrome, which is based on a book by uh, Melanie Houston. And she also worked as a writer too on um, a show called The Kettering Incident. So quite a few chops there, and um, well, this is a major motion picture she's going to be dealing with. And good luck to her. I think it's a great thing. Uh, Jack, that's J A C, and I may not be pronouncing that right. Schaefer wrote the uh, the most recent draft for Black Widow, and has also um, done a uh, uh, feminised version of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which is called Nasty Women. So this is all going to be um, set before the events of the first Avengers movie. So we're actually going to see um, a bit of a, a lead-up to uh, an origin story, I suppose, for the Black Widow's character. Uh, this will not be out before the um, the Captain Marvel movie on uh, March 8 next year, or indeed before the um, next edition of the Avengers saga, where we get to find out what happens. <laughs> Now, speaking of female-centric series, we now have a lady doctor in Doctor Who, which is great, and uh, they've dropped a teaser too, <laughs> where the three new companions are waylaid by mysterious, wibbly-wobbly glowing energy, and uh, after which the, the new doctor appears. I am teased by this, and I, I hope it uh, it all goes well. I'm gonna look. I'm not making any um, excuses here. I'm really gonna miss Peter Capaldi as the Doctor. I thought that uh, he lended a grace and a dignity to the series, and I think that kind of thing was necessary. However, I'm also looking forward to the uh, Jodie Whittaker take on the Doctor as well. I think there's going to be lots and lots of things they can work on in that. Having a, a new sort of energy coming into the TARDIS as opposed to uh, all of that Gallifreyan energy that floats around. don't actually know how they're going to do it all, but we'll find out in due course. It's um, the new Doctor Who. Now, I thought uh, I would uh, have a look at Samurai Jack Season 5 next, so I thought prep it with a little bit of a, a track here. This is Alistair Reynolds, creator of the Revelation Space series. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G on 3 Triple R FM. Fasten your safety belts. You're in for a bumpy ride. Hmm, the 
main title credits for the old Samurai Jack. I thought you might like to just hear that uh, to be kind of prepped for what we're going to talk about now, which is season five of Samurai Jack. Now, this is Jendi Tartakovsky's uh, new, what do we call it, science fiction and fantasy series, I suppose, where it's best animated, of course, Adult Swim cartoons over in the United States. Oh, <laughs> we've got a little bit of, uh, I think, Bowie coming through there for a moment. He's champing at the bit to uh, get on air. Now, Jendi Tartakovsky has fervoured the animated series, which is absolutely awesome. Uh, there have been four seasons before this one. Fifty years have passed, but the character of Samurai Jack has not aged. He's been fighting the ultimate evil, Aku, in the future and the past and points in between, but he's basically been trying to get back to the deep past, back to his own uh, historical roots in ancient Japan. Because if he can stop Aku in the deep past, then obviously nothing in the future is going to uh, go wrong. Well, that's a theory anyway. Before you can say Star Trek time travel episode, here we are 50 years later after the end of the first four seasons, and it's uh, pretty bad for Jack. He, he can, he's lost his magic sword, which means um, Aku can come for him any time he wants because that weapon is only... The only thing that's been stopping uh, the monstrous master of evil from con completely destroying Jack over the years. But Aku doesn't actually know that Jack has lost that sword. So, you know, it's all a bit, um, <laughs> a bit anticlimactic for him. Uh, a bit of a deception. So, in, uh, in this future Samurai Jack era, and, and I actually thought they were trying to fake us out with the fact that Jack hadn't aged. I was wondering, has he been replaced by a robot, because stranger things have happened. Uh, you may recall that the samurai has been facing hordes of robots all through his adventures previously. In fact, Jendi Tartakovsky overwrote the original Star Wars Clone Wars animated series with something like a samurai Jack trope, swapping Jack saw some uh, martial arts prowesses for Jedi Knight tactics so that uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi and the others were all facing legions of killer robots, just like Jack has been doing in his series. But anyway, um, let's just say that season five is as dark as Aku's benighted soul. Uh, and the opening episodes, I thought, because there are ten in this, uh, they swapped, I thought they'd swap Jack out for Judge Dredd. He's riding an assault motorcycle, he's got a helmet on covering his face, and uh, a very large cartoon gun. Uh, I thought that all of that was... Um, particularly well done because uh, we weren't really sure what we were seeing there. Jack is no longer the clean-cut samurai of the earlier stories. He's got a beard and he's all roughed up and he's more bitter than ever and downcast and pretty much very lonely and overwhelmed by the post-apocalyptic world that Aku has created. Although, I've got to say that uh, in a lot of places it really looks quite nice. It's very pastoral and, uh, and rural in places. Then again, there are these big deserts full of destroyed machines and uh, twisted civilizations. 
<laughs> a lot of which actually owe their their existence to Jack because he saved them in the past. And that actually comes through this entire 10 season episode that Jack has been around and doing heroing for several generations uh, so that you all see some old favourites. The dog people, for example, or the Scots, uh, they all make appearances in this too. Uh, one thing which is new are the lethal daughters of Aku. Uh, who certainly aren't exploding spider bots. These are actually human beings. And that's another theme of this new series. He's no longer just fighting robots, although he does take out his fair share of those. Uh, he's now facing humans and living beings. And this changes the, uh, the ethical and moral stance of the entire show. And I know it's a cartoon show, but it's really quite deep um, as, uh, as uh, Samurai Jack has to wrestle with the idea that these are actually people that he's killing now so it's quite advanced stuff for at least for samurai jack and the artwork is even more stylishly vivid than before um i mean my god some of the autumn leaf scapes that they've got in the deserts oh amazing stuff and jack really really has to get back and find that sword because aku is coming once again with his legions of assassins uh, especially with the uh, the daughters of aku Actually, there's a, a lot of um, fun to be had in this series as well. It's not all darkness and um, desperate fights against the odds. Aku is shown doing uh, couch therapy at one stage with himself as the therapist. It's a whole Aku thing. Uh, and there is a, a, rage, a rave being held in um, Samurai Jack's honour because he's become quite legendary now. Uh, but mostly this story is concerned with how Jack is going to deal with the daughters of Aku, especially one daughter of Aku in particular, Ashi, uh, who is um, destined to become more to uh, Jack's story than just another antagonist, shall we say. I, I really enjoyed this season. I, I think it's the very best one I've actually seen. Um, but of course, having said that, it's only that because it's building upon the good history that the other seasons have been um, building up to until now. Now, this is available on DVD. I think there's a couple of extras on the uh, the discs as well. Um, I thought this was really sophisticated uh, and, and I'm so glad that they actually get to uh, conclude Samurai Jack's epic tale in this way. I think uh, it, it's the best of the, uh, the lot and it might not make as much sense to you if you haven't seen the others. <laughs> so go back and watch them all. I'm sure you can get them on a streaming service somewhere. Uh, there's some wonderful things in here. I'm sure that they were fighting blue Andorians at one stage. And, uh, you know, the, just the, um, the way that they show the seven daughters of Aku training. Um, there's, a, there's a robot assassin called Scaramoose. <laughs> who's a, a, a quite uh, jiving sort of junk heap, um, even more so after Jack's lopped his mechanical head off. Uh, and there's some beautiful metaphors in this too, uh, a white wolf uh, who fights against beasts and gets uh, extremely damaged. Ends up being not only a metaphor for Jack's own personal battle, but also a help in his own hour of need. So, yeah, uh, check this out on DVD. Samurai Jack... Season 5, Jendi Tartakovsky is the, at the helm. And as I said um, in one of the, uh, the making of um, 
<laughs> featurettes. They, the, the artwork is a lot more advanced now that they no longer just have to use hamsters. They've got computers to work with or something like that. All right. Um, let me just give you a track now. Uh, actually, I think we'll go with a, a Bowie track. And I was thinking about this. David Bowie had a lot of respect for Japanese culture and um, he used many elements from it in his performances including costume as well as music. Um, you may recall if you ever knew that uh, one of his famous outfits, um, the Space Samurai, which was um, ad adapted from um, a type of loose trousers that the martial artists use called uh, Hakama and this was designed by Japanese um, Costumia Kansai Yamamoto. And a lot of the things that, um, that Bowie used, it was things like um, his mime abilities. Uh, his mime teacher, Lindsay Kemp, was also heavily influenced by Japanese culture, especially Kabuki. Um, the makeup for uh, uh, Ziggy Stardust is, is very, very Japanese based in terms of the, um, the Kabuki style. Uh, even just the, um, the sudden reveals of costume changes that he used on stage, again, very, very sort of uh, Japanese drama. Uh, influenced, but anyway, uh, I can go directly to um, uh, some Japanese influenced music. Even more than that, on um, uh, Mr. Bowie's um, in his canon, uh, we've got Crystal Japan. Uh, this is a remastered 2017 version, and it's from um, an album called A New Career in a New Town. And this is this is collecting um, his tracks from 1977 to 1980. To Crystal Japan. Hello, this is Graham Bond and my nemesis, the old fat army Jack on Triple R. Yeah, and just had a little track there, Mr. Bowie's Crystal Japan. And uh, I felt very mellowed out by that one. Anyway, we are looking at some more pastiches too. <laughs> Not pasties or pastizies, but pastiches. And if you'll bear with me just one second while I just grab it out of my bag <laughs> because I've inadvertently left it in my knapsack. So hang on one sec. Talk amongst yourselves. Okay, so we're looking at a book called Kim... It's by Kim Newman and it's called Anno Dracula... 1000 monsters and this is a uh, a tightened titan paperback uh, is it a trade paperback i don't think it's that quite that big and it's um just come out and it's part of as you can gather from the title kim newman's anno dracula series now we've talked about this a lot on zero g before kim newman is one of my favorite pastiche artists which is to say he uh, puts together a number of disparate elements from popular fiction, in this case, uh, over the literary, tradi literary tradition of several centuries and beyond, especially beyond, considering he's dealing with vampires a lot. Uh, you know, in the vein of, or the jugular vein of, Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill with their League of Extraordinary Gentlemen series, or going back further, Philippe Jose Farmer and his Doc Savage and Saga of the Nine Books, older 
books now, but nevertheless. And in fact, I think um, uh, Kim Newman is one of the more modern pastiche artists who actually references Philip Jose Farmer as well a couple of times. Uh, then, of course, there's um, Quentin Tarantino, who does much the same with films, taking references from martial arts, pop culture in particular, and other genres, and putting them all together in his own films. But here we've got an O Dracula, 1,000 Monsters. Now, this is kind of an alternate history, in fact, very much so, and it all goes pear-shaped or uh, fang-shaped in the um, 19th century. You know the story, Bram Stoker's Dracula, how Dracula is destroyed by Professor... Dr. Van Helsing and his group of stalwart adventurers and vampire slayers. Well, in the Anno Dracula series, this did not happen. <laughs> Dracula turned the tables on his nemesis and defeated him instead, living on or unliving on in Great Britain. And in fact, he marries Queen Victoria, casts a vampire thrall over the British Empire. And there's a considerable diversion of the timeline thereafter, uh, which is also chronicled... That takes place in 1888. That's also chronicled in the story The Bloody Red Baron, which is set during the alternate World War One, where uh, <laughs> Baron von Richthofen, actually a, a living vampire fighter plane. <laughs> then they kicked it forward to Dracula Cha-Cha-Cha in 1959, where um, we got to meet uh, all of the vampire jet set over in Fellini's Italy, really. <laughs> Can't think of it. That's exactly the setting. Uh, and Johnny Alucard later on, which is um, more or less sort of set around uh, Hollywood and the United States in uh, the 1970s and 80s. Uh, now, this latest book, Anno Dracula 1899, actually can follow on after a series of comic books that we reviewed on Zero-G a while ago, um, which came out uh, and talked about um, uh, a group of uh, rebels and revolutionists who were fighting against Dracula during the Queen's Jubilee back in the, uh, in the day. And some of that is actually continued to be referenced in this book, 1000 Monsters, because some of the characters are fleeing from Dracula's reign and they have sought refuge in Japan, where vampires don't officially exist. Therefore, there's a ghetto for them <laughs> in, in uh, Tokyo called the Yokai Town, which is, uh, yeah, a reference to all of those monsters and, and sports and creatures that you see in many Japanese fantasies, including anime uh, and uh, also a lot of um, Japanese supernatural movies. So this ship full of vampires is uh, led by... Genevieve Duedone, the French vampire who we've encountered before. Indeed, on Zero-G, we've talked about her appearances in the Warhammer novels. Strangely enough, Kim Newman has lent his uh, character to stories in other universes, including the Warhammer, uh, not only in the Anno Dracula series, where she features quite prominently, but also in uh, another series of books called The Diogenes Club. So here we have Genevieve, the vampire Genevieve, once again doing her stuff. This time she's a, a doctor. Uh, she always has actually been a doctor over the years. And this book is an account of not only the adventures of the vampires in Tokyo, but also uh, there's a lot of flashbacks to how she got on during the early years of um, 
of the Anno Dracula series when Dracula had become Prince Consort uh, of the Queen Empress and other, a lot of other um, elements in there too. So it functions as a, a backstory to all of that, which is absolutely fascinating, uh, and also as a, a, a portent of the sixth novel that's going to be coming out in due course. Um, she is not alone. She's also with um, uh, Captain Kostaki of the late of the Carpathian Guard, who's had a falling out with Dracula's methods and is also on the run. Sergeant Dravot, who was working for the Diogenes Club, and Princess Christina Light, who we encountered in those recent Kim Newman Anno Dracula comic books. They've all been exiled from England and they're all here on the run in Japan. This is a delightful novel. It sounds like it's just a prep for the next novel and maybe uh, tying up of some loose ends from the Anno Dracula series. And although it does function as that as well, it's got a very strong storyline in itself as the vampires have to deal with a, a lot of things in Japan that uh, they probably were running away from in um, in uh, London anyway. But, you know, that's so it goes when you're on the run. Uh, the people who pop up, fictional, historical and otherwise, and the characters, um, uh, there is a Toshiro Mifune character. I won't tell you which one. Uh, actually, it seems like to me like they've actually got more than one, but never mind. Um, <laughs> believe it or not, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are there. Uh, Lady Snowblood, if you're familiar with that um, particular <laughs> gore-soaked saga of Japanese filmmaking. Uh, Popeye the Sailor Man. Um, Death Larson, referencing his brother Wolf Larson as well, if you know that fictional character. So many more that uh, it's hard to shake a stake at them. Uh, and, you know, so if you're any kind of bibliophile or uh, cinephile, you'll probably really enjoy this book uh, as you go through the deep references. I don't know why I like these things so much. It's like a crossover thing, isn't it, really? It's like, um, I guess I, I guess I um, cut my fangs on uh, Marvel comic crossovers. I, I'm thinking I probably encountered those first as I as I grew up, allegedly. And that sort of love of that kind of thing, you know, where you've got... Um, the Justice League fighting the Avengers or something like that, which I've actually seen in a comic book. Um, or uh, Batman versus Predator or, you know, Batman versus uh, Judge Dredd, that kind of thing. Uh, it, it just it just appeals to me. So anyway, I think this is a very accomplished novel. Uh, it's a different pacing to some of the other ones, but that's good. I think um, Kim Newman's matured in his writing as he's gone along. Mind you, he was pretty damn grown up in the original Anno Dracula, but here there's this style and pace, uh, deep characterizations, some interesting story arcs for even the characters who are clearly there just as pop culture references. Well, they're more than that here. Uh, it's almost as if you sometimes think that he's actually, well, you know, he has actually written them better than they were originally, uh, which is no mean feat in some cases. Anno Dracula, 1000 Monsters, Kim Newman, it's a Titan paperback. Now, to go on from that, um, I'm going to play a track which um, is the uh, lead into our next little bracket. It's The Naked City, it's by <laughs> the Tony Hatch Orchestra, uh, Avengers and other top 60s themes soundtracks. So this is a compilation disc uh, with a lot of movie and TV soundtracks on it. And um, 
the Naked City itself was a television show and why I'm going to play it, you will find out in just a moment. This is Cory Doctorow, author of Little Brother, Information Doesn't Want to be Free, and the forthcoming novel Walk Away, and you are listening to Zero G on 3RRR. And we had a little bit from The Naked City. Well, actually, I think we had it all because that was the television series theme songs, one of those police procedural shows. And I thought I'd treat myself to a dusty archive film, actually, in this case, a 1948 film noir. Now, this means I am indulging in the historical side of Zero G for today. Now, this is directed by Jules... Dasin or Dasan, depending on uh, which country he was in at the time, when he was uh, on the on the lamb from authorities. And, uh, it's really no joking matter of that. Why am I laughing? It's not funny. Um, now he was born uh, in 1911, passed away in 2008. An American film director, a producer, a writer, and actor. And he was blacklisted in Hollywood during the McCarthy era, and so moved to France to revive his career, which he did. I think he ended up in Greece uh, in his later life, where he may have um, passed away. Anyway, he was um, a Communist Party member in the United States in the 1930s, after the uh, the Communists in Russia and um, the Fascists in Germany made a pact in 1939, he left the Communist Party. This did not uh, mean anything at all to the McCarthyist-era authorities when they started cracking down on people. Uh, Ironically, searching for reds under the bed in Hollywood when they actually were under the bunks in the laboratory barracks uh, from America's um, nuclear weapons program. Total misdirection there. Anyway, uh, he went on to do quite a few really critical films to do with film noir and also early before uh, that World War II like uh, 1942's Nazi Agent or Reunion in France, Uh, even one of our genre, The Canterville Ghost in 1944, a a fantasy film. But there's a lot of uh, films that he's done that um, plug directly into the whole noir thing, The Naked City, Thieves Highway, Night and City, Riff, Riff, uh, I can never pronounce this, Riffy. It's so difficult for me to say that. Uh, And and quite a few, a number of other films thereafter. But I really feel that The Naked City really focuses in upon that whole noir genre. It gives you a nice little encapsulation of it. So this one was done in uh, 1948. And it's a good one to talk about today because it's not particularly warm outside here in Melbourne. In fact, it's raining in the city by the bay. A hard rain, a wet rain. But anyway, this is set in New York. Uh, It's a summer night, it's a hot summer night, and there's a pair of dastardly villains who set out to kill Gene Dexter, who's an ex-model, but has something of a uh, a deeper fascination for the evil men in this particular movie. They end up killing her, and there's events that spiral out after that. As they say in the opening of this story, there are eight million stories in the naked city. This is one of them. 
And that's really what it is because it's not just the characters in the murder investigation uh, who are important, though they are, of course, the star turns. It's the city itself. And so many people have commented that this also serves as a time capsule of the 1940s, of late 1940s, for that city. And it does too. I'm watching it thinking, these people are not actors there. No, not the actual actors, but uh, everyone in the background. You're seeing uh, people going about their daily chores, commuting, um, something that uh, doesn't mean a whole lot to anyone born not of a certain time, uh, men carrying chunks of ice around in the, uh, the caliper claws that they use to bring ice blocks to people's houses, uh, things like that, a lot of things, cars, the fact that there's no mobile communications of any sort apart from some very early radios in the actual cars. Uh, no, actually, I shouldn't say that they're early radios, but, you know, I mean, nobody is walking around with cell phones, What is what I mean. And actually, that, that does affect the plot. Uh, of course, if you're making one of these films now, it would be so easy to say, OK, just get onto the phone and call up the, uh, the transit cops and have them stop that uh, villain as he's escaping on the subway train. Can't be done in this because uh, they can't get through to the actual train. Anyway, the main character uh, of the story is homicide detective of the NYPD, uh, Lieutenant Dan Muldoon. Uh, he also has a, an assistant detective, Jimmy Halloran, who's uh, fresh out of the academy, academy almost. Um, uh, so they're going to be in charge of this. Muldoon, he's been a cop for 22 years. Halloran's only been in there for three months. So there's a bit of a dichotomy going on there. Um, Barry Fitzgerald plays Detective Dan Muldoon. Now, this guy, uh, Fitzgerald, was born in 1888, died in 1961. He's an Irish um, film, stage and television actor and had a 40-year-long career. Got two Academy um, he won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for uh, Going My Way in 1944, where he's a, I think he was a priest playing opposite um, Bing Crosby in that one. Um, but he's actually like Hollywood's Irish actor from the era, so you'd see him in The Quiet Man, How Green Was My Valley. Uh, and in fact, for so long, he was the go-to Irishman for um, films. Um, and he had a lilting accent and uh, a twinkle in his eye and he was slightly older and he had the whole thing going. So if you've ever seen a lot of these old movies and some television series too, because it was on, um, on telly, you get this idea of he is Ireland. <laughs> it just cracks me up every time I see him. He has two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, uh, one for television and one for film. So, yeah, he's quite a prominent actor at the time. And he plays the, the role of the, um, the hard-bitten, world-weary, world but still, you know, quite feisty detective, the Irish flatfoot. Well, OK, he's a detective, so he gets to ride around in a car. Um, so well that he just he embodies the role. And uh, he reminds me a lot of um, Columbo, Peter Falk's Columbo, in the way that he plays it. Now, the, the movie, they say, was inspired by the pho photo photography of, uh, of a New York artiste called Ouija, who uh, actually himself published a book called The Naked City in 1945, a book of photographs, and he was um, hired as a visual consultant on the film. Uh, but they also say that um, this film is heavily influenced by Italian neorealism. Neo and, yeah, I can see that. It's, um, it's got a very documentary style, which has helped 
by the fact that the uh, the actual um, producer, Mark Hellinger, is the narrator, uh, talking about um, what's going on constantly, commenting upon the people. Uh, there's a great line in the film um, where they talk about Jean, uh, uh, the, uh, the poor murdered lass, being... Um, just a pretty girl yesterday but now she's the marmalade on 10,000 pieces of toast as she's being talked about in the uh, in the homes of um, the country as people read about her unfortunate tragic death over their breakfast it's just a wonderful little line and that's extended to the uh, the cinematography too. There's a lot of great stuff in this. Um, a particular shot I loved was uh, to the two killers wind up down by the dockside and um, uh, wrangling over what they've just done. And there's a, a horser, a, a great big huge rope for mooring, um, mooring ships that comes down from the top left-hand corner of the frame, sweeping down to the action that's happening by the by the wharf. I thought that was a really great shot. It just led you through like a Renaissance painting. Um, I can't say that this film hasn't aged because obviously it has. The the style and the obviously the setting and all of that, it does place it firmly as a historical piece. Nothing wrong with that at all. I'm quite happy to uh, have enjoyed this, this film. In a way, which I've always said on Zero-G, if we're talking about historical stuff, well, to me, it's just like the future in a lot of ways. Uh, it, it can be excavated and uncovered, uh, aspired to or despised, analysed and put back together. And that's what I felt about The Naked City. Um, the action is a slow burn in this one because it is a detective story and it's very procedural. Um, they, they go bit by bit as they wear out their shoe leather through going from door to door, showing photographs to people. Um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very hard, hard trudging story in a lot of ways uh, as they get around to exploring the different avenues that the characters might have taken, including Fifth Avenue, and also finding out what her connections are to other people as the mystery unfolds. It's all very familiar stuff to us who've been raised on police procedural television shows and movies and so on, but 1947 wasn't quite as familiar and that's the reason why a lot of the stuff that happens in this movie uh, form direct tropes, both television and movie tropes, and have influenced a lot of um, other movies afterwards. For example, uh, um, the... The, the actual series, the, the Naked City, which is based upon this movie, uh, went out in 1958 to 1959 and from 60 to 63 as well. Um, that was semi-documentary too. And that went on to inspire um, uh, Route 66, which was um, another procedural show and just endless ones after that. Uh, and I should also mention that um, science fiction TV writers Gene Roddenberry and Charles Beaumont both contributed to that um, television series version of this movie. Uh, so have a look at The Naked City. You might have to hunt a bit to find it. I saw it on the streaming service Filmstruck. Uh, it is available on DVD, although actually kind of expensive, most of the copies I've seen online. Uh, but, you know, you'll have to work at finding some things, but they're not impossible now. You can source them. The Naked City, it's a, a great... 1948 noir film. Uh, you will be very much up to speed 
on the general direction of noir films after you see this one. The only thing uh, that you might not find in this one is a femme fatale instead of a fatalised femme, uh, which is very unfortunate because the, the genre is rich with that particular type of character. Um, in this case, though, I think they actually go for a, a fairly balanced and sympathetic approach to the poor lass who gets done to death. Um, it's obviously a, a, a terrible subject, uh, and it's not treated too casually here, which is good for um, entertainment fiction from the 1940s. Um, they actually take the time to spend time with her mother, who, of course, is... Uh, going through a, a number of complicated emotions because she was estranged from her daughter before her death. And I felt like they, they treated that part of the subject um, sensitively and with an understanding for the salaciousness of the, of the actual uh, tabloid press uh, nature of the murder. So that's a good one to check out, I think, The Naked City. And it is actually based upon um, a book too, uh, uh, which is... Um, a story that uh, appeared before, but uh, was by uh, Malvin Wald. So there's also that kind of thing too. I have never visited New York, but I am told by people who have that uh, it's quite amazing seeing um, the Williamsburg Bridge, um, uh, the, an apartment building on West 83rd Street in Manhattan, uh, all of this sort of thing. Some of them still exist, some of them don't. But like I said, time capsule of the era. All right, now, um, since we have expended our uh, Naked City track there, and I could play another one, but uh, I don't think I will. I'll go with a Doctor Who track here that um, I wanted to play to you. Uh, as we know, there's a new composer for Doctor Who, but I still have plenty of Murray Gold to play. <laughs> God bless, Rob. <laughs> uh, and this is actually from the, uh, the compilation set, the Doctor Who Series 9 soundtrack album. And these are from the BBC, of course. They've done a great job of actually chronic chronicling all this. I know that they're popular sellers, of course. Um, but I do like the way they've got the retro posters for the individual episodes in the back of the, uh, the liner notes for this too, which is pretty cool, you know, and they're all trying to do um, a series of um, thematic posters uh, that key into the, the stories there. I particularly like the Husbands of River Song one there, um, which is actually the track that we're going to play here, the, the Husbands of River Song. This is Carly Chan, author of the Dark Heavens and Journey to Wudang trilogies, and you're listening to Zero G on 3RRR FM. Ah, here we go. The Husbands of River Song, which is a track from the Doctor Who Series 9 album. Lovely little compilation there that um, gives us not quite the last season of Peter Capaldi's canon as the Doctor but uh, still something substantial. Now, I was going to talk about um, a uh, comic book during today's show, um, The Illustrated Masterpieces, The Tempest by Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill, which is a continuation of his League of Extraordinary Gentlemen series. Uh, but I think I'll run out of time for t that today, so I won't mention that much at all, <laughs> apart from just telling you about it, that it's hit the comic book stands now. And it is a joy and a thing of wonder and pleasure for all, for young and old. Perhaps not too young, actually. There's naughty bits in it. 
Anyway, uh, speaking of naughty bits, the Melbourne International Film Festival is coming up from the 2nd to the 19th of August. The, uh, the program dropped on Friday, or sorry, on, uh, the program start, kicked off last week, but you got the guide if you were looking for uh, it in paper format on the weekend, on Saturday in the age. Uh, and I can already see a change which I really, really like. Um, the screening schedule in the program, uh, if you're familiar with the, uh, the mammoth little production that this is, um, actually is all done up in uh, coloured bars on the different days so that you can see uh, when a session ends and when another begins easily so that you can plan your day of running from between cinemas and, hey, look, I've got time for food there or maybe I have got time for just a coffee or maybe just a tic-tac as I sprint between sessions. So that I really liked, that, uh, that slight procedural exchange there. Now, I'm still assimilating data, <laughs> as they say, looking at uh, all of the science fiction, fantasy and historical guts of the festival, trying to knead my way through them and pull out the choice tasty bits for Zero-G listeners. I uh, should be uh, finished that by next week's show. And I already see a few, you know, I mean, I look into the night shift section and already see a whole bunch of things that look like Zero-G fodder uh, and have already selected a couple of zombie films. What would a myth be without a couple of zombie films, I ask you. <laughs> but that's about it for today's show. We'll get into that next week. And I'll probably have a list of these things up on um, the, uh, the Triple R website, uh, the Zero-G section at rrr.org.au before long and I'll certainly have one on the uh, Zero G Facebook page as well. All right, that's about it for today's show. What will we go out with? Well, we were talking about um, David Bowie and his uh, Japanophile sort of leanings and so I chose this uh, really nice track, Moss Garden. And I think this is originally on the Heroes album, but this one comes from, again, another, uh, the same compilation that we played earlier on, A New Career in a New Town, 77 to 82, different Bowie tracks. And he's actually playing a, uh, a Japanese um, instrument in this, uh, sort of like a zither. <laughs> that probably doesn't tell you a whole lot more, but it's a stringed instrument. So it kind of ties into our uh, 1000 Monsters book today and the discussion about Samurai Jack. And thanks to the folks out in the uh, the production area of Triple R in the uh, engine room of the station who've been helping me out with some podcast content for today. And also thanks to Dylan who's helping us with Zero G. All right, off we go. Joe Brunatic coming up with... Astral Glamour next and here's Mr Bowie with Moss Garden. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.